From the Finley Toyota Studio, it's Cofield and Company. Tuesday, 5 o'clock hour. John Von Tobel is here. It's Cofield, Ari, in the Finley Toyota Studios. Big five time. Battleborn Injury Lawyers presents the Big Five at Five. Number five. We're talking a lot of college football today. We didn't get to LSU and Florida State, one of the craziest endings you're ever going to see. Florida State, frankly, blew the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they came up with a big play at the end. Coaching on both sides was not great. And then there was some sort of drama with LSU wide receiver. By the way, one of the best names in college football, especially because it matches the market. Kayshawn Boutte ain't happy. So what's no. going on here? So they got into a shouting match, apparently. This is according to some reports. Um, and there were some allegations that Brian Kelly was actually like running the offense away from him. Like they wouldn't do anything um, to get him the ball. I think he got his first catch in the third quarter or late second. So after the game, uh, he has removed every bit of LSU propaganda from his bio, Steve Cofield, on Instagram. You know what that means? He's gone. Done. Do you think? I don't know. He's probably mad. I mean, in today, I would say this. This is not a generation thing. But in today's climate, where you can go where you want, essentially, as a college athlete, and if you're genuinely not happy, say the chances are relatively good right. that he's gone. Very childish, though. By Kelly? I know. No. By the, by the player. It, it, let me ask you this. If it Wait, is true. Were you talking about Kelly removed all his no. LSU reps? He's like, we lost. Not happy. I don't want to be connected to this till later in the week. I'll put my stuff back up. Let, let me ask you this. Because we're always against the players. What if it's true? Yeah. What if Kelly was purposely not running offense to get Boutte the ball? I don't know what's been going on behind the scenes in the lead up to the game. What camp was like. I have no idea. I don't know. You know, like we always we always assume like oh, it's childish on the wide like the athlete's part. What if that was true, though? I mean, the saving grace in this discussion is that Brian Kelly can be a horse's ass. So, right. yeah. He wanted to execute his players after a game, Steve. Remember? This figure of speech. I think was, people overreacted a little it bit. It was so bad. Just a little bit. Number four. Do you watch any of the pregame shows in the morning? Yeah. No. For college football? No. Nothing? Nothing. Man, I was up. I was fired up. I was up early. No reason to be up at 7.15 on a Saturday morning, but I was up, and I was watching one. It is a little weird that Urban Meyer is right back in an analyst chair for Fox, is it not? We were talking, I don't know if you were on the show, or we were talking about Mike Mayock last week. I think it was you, right? And we were, we were the questions thrown out there, like, yeah. does Mike Mayock just get to go back on TV at some point and be an analyst? Who we're like, yeah, that guy knows about the draft, you know, after... Another disaster last week where one of their picks, Alex Leatherwood, was cut at the beginning of the week. But the same goes for, like, I, I actually, and I'm not some sort of, I'm not Pollyannish, like, okay, I understand who football coaches are, and I know that Urban Meyer is kind of a dirtbag. But as I watch him, I'm like, this feels weird. Um, like, he just gets to go right back on TV after just completely and utterly flopping in the National Football League. And part of it was a morals deal where he's, you know, Feeling up some twenty something. That's where that's where the difference is with him and Mayock, right? For Mayock, the question was: Would you trust this guy's analysis right. when he's criticizing a team for trading up and not understanding draft capital when you were terrible at it? For for Urban Meyer, it's let's put this guy on college campuses and 
Listen to him. He allegedly kicked one of his players out of rage during practice, hired a scumbag strength coach at the beginning of his tenure, did what he did in London, was just generally a crummy dude, right? He's also, the other thing about Urban Meyer, he's not that good. Like, he's just okay. Like, if he was... Oh, from an analyst standpoint. Yeah, Yeah, like, on TV, he's not great. Because that's the other one. I'm I'm watching a panel with, I think it's Leinart, Bush, and I forget who else was on there. But, like, they're all looking at him like, you guys are good, too. Like, who cares what he has to say? Buzz off. I agree with you. But it, it kind of, it, in a certain way, it goes back to the Brady thing with like when he's gone and when he's done, he gets to go to the broadcast booth for however million, many million dollars. I can't remember. For me, it doesn't make a difference. You could put four people up there that I don't know. One, I'm not watching. Right. And two, like all we're there for is give me the rah-rah stories, give me some picks that are eventually going to be wrong, and you're only going to pick them straight up, and then get to the games. Like That's all that matters. I, I actually I, I don't watch the NFL pregame shows, but... I like the college. I like to watch the college football shows just to get a feel for. No, I do. And the other, <laughs> the, the one that was I, that I thought was really weird was ESPN's college football morning show in Columbus. You know, they're there whatever eight hours before kickoff. I guess they had some lightning issues, so they got scurried inside, and maybe it, it screwed all of them up. But when they're making picks, like it doesn't seem like anyone knows the lines. Like you know the lines. Stop. And then they started talking about the college football twelve-team format. And it was like an informative session where it didn't seem like Kirk Herbstreit, like he was pretending like he didn't know what was going on. And then Reese Davis gets on a high horse and he's like, well, you know, there are some negatives and this and that. And, and then I saw a perfect tweet. Uh, I don't know if there's a woman or man, Amanda Mull, right? Sends out ESPN doing a game day portion of the show on how conference expansion and realignment makes the sport fragile. So we need to hold on to it even harder. And, and she was like, this stuff was your idea. ESPN, all the conference real like this is your idea as a network. <laughs> so like do we pat those guys on the back that they're stepping out of line, speaking out against their bosses? Like most of the change is being forced by TV. I celebrate it. And I guess they can have their own opinion. I don't know, where do you fall on this thing? Because they were making cases like, well, there are going to be games that, you know, used to be really important that aren't as important uh, moving forward. Just like this resistance to change and being a real sport with real playoffs. Yeah, more teams will have a chance to share in the money. We get to see more competition. The sport is going to level out as some coaches move on and retire. This is a great thing. I, I don't understand the thought process of the games won't matter as much anymore. There's gonna be more games that matter. Am I am I crazy about thinking? I feel that? like by the middle of the season, like we're down to like eight teams. Right. If there's now only you're gonna, have, you're gonna have like real running for teams in every conference. If there's only twelve spots, right? If this is gonna be a twelve team playoff, that means that there's twelve teams that can make it. That means twelve teams need to maintain a very good season as they move along to get to the dance. That means a lot of these performances are gonna matter. I, I never really understand why that, like, oh, these games are just not going to matter anymore. No, it's just not going to matter that you need to go 11-1 and or 12-0 and to get there. But there's going to be now a lot more teams that are playing, for example, like West Virginia and Pitt earlier in this season. If we were talking about a 12-team playoff for a Pitt team that's ranked, that's a massive game. And that's a massive game coming up this weekend against Tennessee because you want a seat, a seat within the top 12. I don't really understand that thought process. Uh, the other one, this is the argument that goes back like 40 years, and it's such a it's such a giant lie, is what about the kids and all the games? Okay. Very few teams are going to make it to the third and fourth game. 
It's a tournament. And they're not playing round robin. It there's only a few teams that are going to play extra games. And the worst part about that argument has always been at the level below where many of the schools are actually more academically solid. That's their mission. Those teams at FCS can play extra games. Like is it killing the kids? Right. And the teams that will make the deeper runs are going to be more often than not the teams that have more NFL talent. So those kids are actually preparing their bodies to get ready for the NFL schedule. How about another positive that kids will actually play in this tournament instead of looking at bowl games and going, that's a waste of my friggin' time. Yeah. NFL, you know, draft eligible kids are going to look at it and go, all right, now I'll play because we have a chance to go for a championship. And we also don't know the format yet, but I would say this, and I hope they do it. If the first early round games are actual home field games, yeah. the pomp and circumstance of a home field Holy college crap. football playoff game? Holy crap. Can you imagine what those environments are going to be like? I think those are pretty darn good situations. Number three. All right, here we go. The O-line is mostly set. I could sit here and act like a horse's ass and claim that Jermaine Illuminor is going to be out there the entire time at right tackle and that John Simpson 100% will get every play for the Raiders this week. He's the number one at left guard. Illuminor is the number one at right tackle. But we know there's going to be some rotating throughout the game. But that all said, you come out of the freaking gates and you're going on the edge against Khalil Mack and Joey Bosa and the Chargers. Wow. This is going to be a test. Josh McDaniel spoke today about getting ready for these two guys who were uh, two premium edge rushers. You got to do a good job of, of using your techniques and playing with good fundamentals. Um, we have to do a good job of, of trying to get the ball out on time when we're supposed to. And, uh, you know, you pick your spots when you're going to try to do something and hold the ball a little longer, what have you, based on the play you're trying to accomplish. So they present a lot of issues offensively on their own. Uh, seeing them on the same field obviously will, will, will be difficult, but... Uh, you know, we're like I said, we're hard at work trying to figure out how to how to create some offense against against their whole group, and you know, but but they'll definitely be a challenge. Awesome freaking game to open with, and the Chargers have added Khalil Mack to the defense. J.C. Jackson very questionable for the game on the back end, but the O line is going to be the story here for the first two or three weeks. Uh, can these guys be a good offensive line, and if not, who gets shuffled in to try to lock it down a little bit more? But there's a lot of questions, and this is a hell of a test coming out. You think Josh McDaniels listens? To us? No? I got a good game plan thing for him here. You ready for this? All right, you ready for okay, this? You ready right. for this? Uh, if, I, if he were listening right now, he's like, turning it off. Yeah, he's like, no, I'm not listening to this. Or he's like, this is going to be a great idea. <laughs> so when Miles Simmons was on with us in the 4 o'clock hour, I mentioned, you know, it's okay to push back on certain perceptions of teams, like the Steelers being a good defensive team. Their run defense was among the worst in the National Football League. You know who's was literally the worst in the National Football League on many, many Metrics, or many, many metrics, the Los Angeles Chargers. You know who didn't really improve the interior of their defense in the offseason? The Los Angeles Chargers. So what I'm interested in, in all seriousness, I'm going to offer game plan advice, but what I'll be interested in to see is what is the approach here because you talk about avoiding really strong edge rushers. You know how you do that? You kind of run away from them. You run up the middle, and you can kind of have a lot of success on the ground against this front. So I do wonder if that's going to be the game plan after after all the excitement. Can you imagine? After all the excitement in the offseason, Devontae Adams is here. This wide receiver core is great. And Josh McDaniels is a very game plan-oriented guy. They just come out in their trio of running back. They're just like, doop, 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 handing it off left and right and just trying to run up against a really weak front. Number two. 
It was interesting in McDaniel's comments, stating the obvious there, that when you don't have a great offensive line or a line with question marks, when you throw, the ball better be out quickly. Derek. Now, what does that mean for Derek Carr? What kind of season is he going to have? Uh, while doing a fantasy discussion on ESPN, Ryan Clark and Laura Rutledge here looking for sleepers. Here's RC Sleeper. Which quarterback will throw the most touchdown passes this season? It's going to be Derek Carr. And, yeah, I know it's all these other guys, the Tom Brady's, the Aaron Rodgers, but I'm looking for Derek Carr to have the 2007-like breakout season we saw from Tom Brady when he got Randy Moss. You're going to have Darren Waller. You're going to have Hunter Renfro. And, obviously, now Devontae Adams on the outside. I think this is a year where he improves greatly on his 32 touchdowns that he threw in 2015. This is a guy that's going to be mid-40s come February. Mid-40s for touchdowns. Damn, I was just going to set the number at the 32 he mentioned, but he's so confident. I guess we got to set it at what, like 37? Yeah. You kind of split the difference, go up to 38, 39. What do you, what do you think? RC suggesting an over/under of we'll go 37 and a half. Will Derek Carr okay. throw more than 37 and a half touchdowns? So my thoughts on the actual benchmark, it's pretty high. If you're setting it there, I'm going to go under. Yeah. It's a very hard. It's nothing against Derek Carr or this offense. Yeah. It's just a very, very hard number to achieve. Now, seventeen games, all that. Maybe it's a little. It's obviously a little bit easier than it would be in the past, but it's still a very hard mark to achieve. I'm laughing. Also, though, did you catch what he said in there, Steve? No. He, when he was listing off the weapons of Derek Carr. Ah, the encyclopedia salesman is all of a sudden a weapon when you're saying that Derek Carr is going to throw, what, 50-plus touchdowns. Hunter Renfro's now a weapon. A month ago, he was the encyclopedia salesman that he was talking down about to Derwin James. Hmm. Interesting. Good memory. Real good memory. Cofield-esque steel trap. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes. Sometimes we have it. Uh, What if Carr's over-under number is... Yeah, you know what? Actually, do you know what it is? Tell you in a second. Yeah, I, I was just trying to look. It can't be as low as 32, is it? <laughs> Might be. I mean, his numbers have been low in recent years. It's gonna be it's gonna be bumped up because of the Adams news. I'll tell you that much. There's a deep, deep player list that I gotta go through. Give me a second. <laughs> well, we'll do it. You know, we'll do it after uh, 5:20. Let's move on. Number one. So a big feature on Devonte Adams. ESPN.com. Quite the backstory, John, mm-hmm. with Adams and Carr. You know, we know a lot about it. I know you said this was uh, voluminous in length. There were some funny stories in this, right, with their relationship. I guess I didn't realize they were this close. They go on a rafting trip together? So apparently they went on a rafting trip together. Um, and I'm sorry, I read the whole thing, but it escapes me the timeline in which it happened. I believe this is when they were in college, though. So they go on a rafting trip together, and it was like a literal, like, White, it seems like a white water rafting trip. Mm-hmm. And so part of the story is the guy who is directing them tells them, you know, whatever you do, you don't stop paddling. Because when you stop paddling, you capsize, you flip. And oh, wow. So, so Adams tells the story of they're on this trip and they're paddling. And at one point, it becomes an extreme, like, rafting trip. And they both, Derek Carr and Devontae Adams, kind of freeze up. But they were with their Derek Carr's now wife was there, and I think another woman was there as well. I can't remember if it was Devontae Adams' now wife, so I'm not going to say that, but I think there were two other women because there was a great note in the story, which the two football players who were insanely ripped froze up and stopped battling, like stopped oh, battling. No. and the two women are sitting there trying to get this thing done. And eventually I think they flipped and they capsized, and uh, Devontae Adams, it seemed like thought he was going to die. Or maybe 
Derek Carr almost murdered him. I think that's the way to frame that. You have two young boys. I do. They're going to want to do stuff. Will you match the Cofield and company attitude? Outside of Willie, who goes hiking, the rest of us are like, outdoors? Nah. Oh, I, I love going outdoors. I'm actually so... Are I'm, you, could, you, could you see you and the boys, whatever, 10, 12 years from now, a Von Tobel rafting trip. Diego is is evolving to be a little bit more risk adverse. He's the older one. Yeah. And so, he's very skinny now, which disappoints me. Yeah. Um, so we'll see if that's going to be the case. He is adventurous, but at the same time, like, he's one of those, like, if he gets popped in well, the face one time, he's going to be like, all right, like, I'm done. This is not, I'm not doing this. Should we go down, should we go down the path of trying to brave him up a little bit last week? Oh, I, you told me off the air. Which one? About his, getting a shot. Oh, well, that was, holy, that was a nightmare. <laughs> Parents will understand. I think I think I think we've all been there, but I I kind of know what it's like to waterboard and or torture somebody. I had to pin my son down, <laughs> cross his he, arms. He didn't like it. And like I Ari, I'm telling you, I had to cross his arms and pin him down on the table while he screamed at the top of his lungs because he had to get a, like a shot. He had to get three actually. Can I? That's a great story. This will no, it'll it'll actually it'll be a great story. Like I said, ten or twelve years from now, if he's out <laughs> rafting and he's you know freaking tough as nails, dangerous yeah. dude, and yeah. you're like, kid, I remember you just getting a shot. Can I tell you what you were like as a little guy? So it's a great moment because he's like growing and he's showing more like you know advanced traits and stuff. So I tell him the whole time I'm telling him like it's just one shot, dude. You're fine. He ends up needing to get three. Oh. And, and so he, we're sitting there, and he's, you know, he's still doing the, you know, hiccuping thing after he's all done. And he comes up, and I'm walking towards Steve, and he looks at me, and he just goes, and he holds up a one right in my face, and he goes, "You told me there was only one." It's the Big Five at Five, brought to you by Battleborn Injury Lawyers. If you've been injured, call Justin Watkins at Battleborn Injury Lawyers five seven zero nine thousand. Now, back to Cofield and Company. Boy, the snap, ram with the hole to send it to free football. Snap, spot, blocked! Yeah! It's no good! Yeah! It's blocked! Shaheen Brown got his men on it! Fire up the war chant and plant the spear! Nose win! Nose win! Mike Norvell, you have your signature win! That was a good call. That's actually a brand new uh, play-by-play guy. Gene Deckerhoff did the uh, Knowles Forever. It's a new guy named uh, Jeff Culhane. I don't want to mispronounce his name. And then screaming in the analyst role was former Florida State player and NFL player William Floyd. That was a freaking cool moment. Really cool moment. All right, so you looked up Derek Carr because uh, Ryan Clark, ESPN NFL analyst and former NFL player, had talked about Derek Carr being the guy who can lead the league in touchdowns thrown, that uh, he would surpass his career high of 32 easily, and we'd be looking at mid-40s by the end of the season. So I was trying to set over-under numbers. I was way too high because the real over-under number for touchdowns thrown is pretty enticing. 29 and a half. At DraftKings. You would think with Waller, Renfro, and Devontae Adams, 30 touchdowns thrown would be very possible. Mm-hmm. Very I, possible. I mean, I just, I was, I'm, whether it's possible or not, I'm just surprised given the offseason hype that you don't just put that like in the 30s, right? 30, 30 and a half even. Just well, given the, liability. When you looked at the number, there wasn't a big 
You know, what was it? It wasn't like minus, minus 115 both sides. Yeah. So it's like minus 200 or something right. on the over. Yep. So, I mean, it seems like a low number given what we know or given what we expect, I should say. We don't really know anything. Given what we expect and what we have seen. I mean, we just talked about it. Maybe the game plan in week one is handed off a bunch of times and he throws one touchdown. Maybe your suggested game plan in week one is it's the, the game plan they use a lot in the AFC West. Now, that's only six games. But when your defense is a little questionable on the back end, John, I'm talking about the Raiders, and you're facing Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert and Russell Wilson, maybe the plan against those teams, if you can run the ball, is to have more ground control and wear away the clock. Lean on. Lean on the opposing defense. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm to I'm gonna look this up really quickly because just off the top of the dome – not very good defenses in the uh, AFC West no. as a whole. I think no. it gets this reputation as not the case, but uh, Kansas City had some really bad moments last year. Talked about the Chargers, basically how bad they were against the run. Raiders are in there too. And the Broncos, the Broncos are really interesting because, again, we talk about reputation. They have a reputation for being a good defensive team. But if you look at some of the metrics behind it, Vic Fangio did a lot of good work with that unit. Not that they're abhorrent, but they're much closer to average than an above-average unit. Today's Cofield and Company is presented by Ellis Island Casino, home of $5 microbrews every day and all-you-can-drink packages during NFL games. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota studio. Did you bet the U.S. Open? No. Why are you so into... uh... Coco Golf and whoever Garcia is. I just been saying that. I think it is Coco Golf, but eh. regardless, Golf um, Golf. Oops. Well, I so I watched Nadal yesterday get upset. He was a six dollar favorite yesterday. So now I'm in. Not here in. Not, 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 in. not after all the Serena stuff. Nadal getting upset. That got you. I was just say no. I, I like I, this is. I enjoy tennis, and especially my favorite is the Australian Open because it's on late at night. You could just sit there and watch it. So for me, tennis is like soccer. I will sit and I will enjoy the sport. I really enjoy watching it being played. I don't follow it, so I don't really understand who's out there. And my lingo on the game is very, very limited. But I enjoy it. And watching Serena and uh, her losing the other day, Isabel and I were watching it at dinner. Actually, I had the phone propped up. We were out for dinner and I had it on the table. I'm kind of in. I want to see how this ends up. So, yeah. And Coco Goff's a little bit of a star. Emerging, no doubt. Yeah. So we were just talking about the division, AFC West, Raiders, Going against Chargers, Broncos, and Chiefs. The Chiefs have been a real pain in the ass. How good the Chiefs are going to be this year, we don't know. New receivers. My thought is, when you're an awesome quarterback, the same goes for Rodgers. You find a way to make it work, and you elevate guys. So I think the Chiefs will be fine. Mm -hmm. Now, as you mentioned... The Chargers are, well, you didn't mention this part. The Chargers are ready for the next step, right? Now it's time to win at a higher level and make the playoffs. You can't fall short this year, which means that for me, Staley, do all you want with your aggressive play calling. (laughs) I'm cool going for it on fourth and short, like all the time I am. But execution and play calling has got to be better. But as you mentioned, one of the other things with that team is They've added superstars. We'll call them all on the outside on defense. And Khalil Mack can go back to J.C. Jackson. We'll see what his status is after the, as it turns out, minor surgery on his ankle. 
Can they stop people up the middle? Because yeah, I know you were just having a discussion with someone on Twitter about, you know, they added guys up the gut, but they did they add, you know, guys, dudes. Like, are these guys good enough to, to shore up their run game? Right. Their David, run defensive game. David Monzo, we were going back and forth. And shout out to David because David's actually, I like going back and forth with guys. And David's been one of them a couple of times. Um, you know, he said I couldn't be wrong or couldn't be more wrong because they brought in Austin Johnson and Sebastian Joseph Day. My response was, and I always say this too when it comes to this, because I, I like pro football focus and what they do, uh, but it is only one outlet's grading system. So you can say however you want how you grade interior defenders. I would also say it's very hard to find a measure of interior defenders when it comes to the NFL. Uh, but Austin Johnson, 53.9 run defensive grade from PFF last season and 665 snaps. And Joseph Day, he's been in the league three years, grade of 65 or lower and run defense in two of those three years. So while you bring in bodies to address the issue, I'm not sure that those are the guys that are going to actually make them better. And that's the question. And there's also the question of Staley's defensive scheme, right? Which is you set it up, you invite the run, which has been part of the reason why they have been somewhat below average when it comes to defending the run. But it is a little bit of an issue. And that's, for me, what the question is for the Chargers. You add talent along the perimeter, like good talent. But up the middle, where you were your weakest, you added bodies, but are the quality bodies that are going to help you improve to a greatest extent? Because here's the thing. Even if we're talking about the two guys that we're mentioning, adding along the interior, making them a little bit better, you're talking about going from literally, in multiple metrics, 32nd in the National Football League, dead last, to how realistically, what does a, I have to look back at their names, Sebastian Joseph Day and Austin Johnson bring you? How, how much farther up do they bring you? I'm not sure how much farther up they really bring you. SJD's numbers were what against the run? Uh, well, it's not like against the run. They get graded by pro football okay. focus, right? So by pro, uh, Austin Johnson, 53.9 run defensive grade last season. That was over 665 snaps. Uh, SJD, as you call him, in two of the three years in the league, 65 or lower. 65 and I think a 62.5. He did have a year over 70, which is about above average from my you know gathering Who? of the PFF grade. Came from the Rams. Who was he playing next to? Yeah, Aaron Donald. Ooh. That's the other part. Ooh. And, and we were just talking, was it Miles Simmons who brought that up? About how Aaron Donald tends to, and I, I don't think SJD got paid per se, right. but he, he tends to make the players around him better because of how much he commands in terms of having to account for him. We'll see. I mean, I could be wrong. These two are total studs, and they show up the middle of that interior, and they go from 32nd in multiple categories to like 10th. But they were really bad at times last year. Really, You, you have a lot of time, so I'm not going to make you... Go official with this, but I'll what are official. what are you what are you thinking for packing order in the AFC West? Because I'm all over the place on this. Do you want you want what the order of finish, or do you want like so? For example, order of finish. Okay, because I think the bet to make is the Raiders from an odds perspective. But well, order, that counts too. You're right because we have to roll in value. If you're gonna if you're paying a, a hefty price on the Chargers or Chiefs, what's the point? Right, because I do believe that the the probability of the price tag on the Raiders to win this division is too low. Like all of those prices are the OFC plus whatever. Those are implied probabilities in there. I think the probability of the Raiders to win the division is higher than the market's giving them credit for. But having said that, if you're going to tell me the most probabilistic outcome of the division, I would say it is Chiefs, Chargers, Raiders, Broncos. Really? Yes. Sorry, I had a, had yeah. a process. Say yeah. it again, slow. Chiefs, Chargers, Raiders, Broncos. I would say that is the most probabilistic outcome of the division finish. Why Broncos last? I think And that, how bad could it be for the Broncos if they finish last? I mean, I, th- I don't know if it would be bad. 
but it's not what you want the first year of Russbot coming over. But I do think Russell Wilson, you've seen declines statistically in his game over the last few seasons. Last year, I don't want to take too much out of last year because he was injured, but there is that kind of trend here with Russell Wilson in terms of his decline. Also, if you look at him, one of his greatest flaws is, and it's also a strength because it leads to the highlight plays, he's not a quarterback that typically takes the easy stuff. It's all hold on to the ball, get stuff downfield. How does that fly when you're in a division that has some really good interior and edge rushers that you're going to face regularly? Hmm. Don't know how much that flies for you. And I also think, as we kind of alluded to earlier, if you look at the actual numbers behind some of the defenders for the Broncos, this is a team that was actually very average defensively. I think a lot of people look at Denver and say, that's a really good defensive team. They had a good defensive coordinator in Vic Fangio. But when you look at them statistically, they were an average team. And I think that kind of has them in a spot where if if the bad version of Russ shows up, you're looking around this division, they could end up last. And they could end up last like 9-8. and eight. That's the other thing. They could still have a winning record and be last. I was doing some reading today, getting ready for some uh, Broncos discussion later in the week. We're going to preview the Broncos and probably the Chiefs later in the week. And obviously, we're going to do a lot of charter spots coming up with week one Raiders at L.A., and I read Fan Sided and SB Nation, which are both fan driven sites. One had the Broncos going twelve and five and winning the division. <laughs> the other fourteen and three. Oh, okay. Realistic <laughs> realistically then. Okay. I yes. will say the guy uh who wrote that they would go twelve and five and win the division, I also saw him last week make a comment about Trayvon Mullen getting traded to the Cardinals, and said the Raiders just traded their best cornerback. So he has no idea what's going on there. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think Trayvon Mullen was their best best guy. I think it's clear Nate Hobbs is probably their best guy. I mean, from a grading standpoint and availability standpoint, that, that was the, the availability was the biggest problem with Trayvon Mullen. Right. He's their best. And now you have the Broncos going 12-5. and five. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Uh, you know what? Nate Hackett may be the next great young head coach. He might. He might. I don't love, I'll tell you this, I don't love that he's calling plays. Why not? And because uh, he's never been a head coach before. And I think running the offense and running a team at the same time is really hard. <laughs> and McDaniels is going to do it too, but McDaniels, are, McDaniels is much further along in his maturity as a coach, and it didn't work out the first time. But I think he's learned some lessons from that, so he will run the offense. And then, you know, and then I, I can also pull back and go, I have no idea what the responsibilities will be responsibilities will be during the week and on game day like how much will McDaniel's lean on Lombardi how much will because they're calling it a collaborative effort how much will Hackett lean on his offensive assistance I don't know mm-hmm. but that to me is a little bit risky I the Broncos are a very intriguing team I I see the path where people get excited about it I do I understand why you would as a fan go 12 and 5 baby here we go but I think if you take a more realistic approach, nine and eight is a much more realistic outcome for them. Howard today on his show, you know, I'm a big fan of the show over on uh, Fox 1340 and 98.9 FM, Fox Sports Las Vegas. Cowherd on his show uh, did a portion of the show where he laid out that Russell Wilson is extremely underrated and that for some reason people come up with this like, hey, Pete Carroll made Russell Wilson. The defense made Russell Wilson. And he laid it out there. He's like, eh, you know, Pete before Russell Wilson with a lot of those defensive players wasn't that good. Had been fired from two jobs as a very young coach. Russell Wilson made Pete Carroll. I like I like when people make like when when Colin makes an argument like that, right? Who said that? Like four people? 
No, he actually he actually found um, you know I'd have to go back and listen to it. He found and it was probably someone anonymous. It was a, an anonymous uh, former NFL executive who oh, said one person that well, I mean, I, you still build it off that like maybe that's a thought by from several NFL people. Yeah, he used that. Hey, that's what the guy said. Said that Russell Wilson's overrated and that the defense did much of the work for the Seahawks, not Russell Wilson in the you know their most winning times. I, I've been I think I've been wrong on Russell Wilson before in that a lot of the issues in Seattle, I very much pointed to offensive line, Pete Carroll, things of that nature. And the more I looked at it, I came more around to a lot of what went wrong was also on Russell Wilson, kind of what we're alluding to with the holding onto the ball too long, trying to force things downfield. So it was a collaborative effort. I mean, Pete Carroll, though, was very, very stubborn in not not opening up this offense. And the times that they did, they looked incredible. You know, maybe you're right, and maybe Russell Wilson is on a decline. I still, I mean, I said it at the time when they were bickering, and then when they made the the, uh, the move in the offseason, I, I think John Schneider and Pete Carroll are very full of themselves, and they've had a lot of success. That's the GM and the coach. I don't think you walk from a guy – like Russell Wilson, with no plan in place. Like if they if they already had a guy there, you got Geno Smith. Yeah, if they have no plan in place. And if the plan is you know win five games, one I don't think Pete Carroll's down with that. But if that's the plan, then you better freaking nail it. And they can say, hey, we already did with Russell Wilson. Now we have a we'll have a top ten pick. Of course we're gonna nail it. We're gonna get the next quarterback. Good luck. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield and Co. Cofield and Company presents. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. Grab bag. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Only on ESPN Las Vegas. Von Tobel, Cofield, Ari. Grab bag time. Grab bag time. Get in there. Stick your hand in there, Dave. The Lakers situation is fascinating. It is. The offseason plan is not done yet, right? In that, like, you think Russell Westbrook is yet to be moved or something? He's going to be moved. He's not. What's going to happen is he's going to be part of the team or they're going to send him home a la John Wall and tell him, see you, man. That part's crazy. But there was a report, I think, today or late yesterday that came out that said they're very resistant to that idea, which I would agree with. You're paying him $40 million. He has strengths. You just there's two things that need to happen. You as a team need to be willing to put lineups out there that accentuate those strengths, and he's got to be willing to take on that role. So I, what's the problem? I mean, I was think, a bad coaching last year, or is he a pain in the ass and, no, won't, and won't and won't do it? I mean, I think it's a mix of everything. I, I mean, pain in the ass is obviously a very negative term when it comes right. to Russell Westbrook. I just do wonder if there how much the resistance because you assume there is some in bringing him off the bench as opposed to making him a full-time starter. Because I think when you look at their roster, there are strengths to putting him on the bench and putting him with a more athletic and quicker unit that can get up and down the floor. You almost have like these two different types of teams that you can roll out there at once. And I think they're, they're, that's something that they could totally do. But like you said, we are not behind the scenes. You don't know if Russ Westbrook has been like, hell no. I mean, Carmel Anthony famously when he was at the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think that was the team that he was on when he told him, come off the bench, come on, stop. And he has now kind of accepted that role a little bit more. So I do wonder if that's going to be the case. Because if he does, then I think you can kind of make this work. They also love each other now, Russell Westbrook and Pat Beverly. They hugged today. Yeah, what what happened? They So they had the uh, they had the press conference, a welcoming press conference, it seemed, for Pat Bev. 
And uh, Russell Westbrook was like up against the wall and the, the walkway in front of him to the podium or whatever you want to call it for Patrick Beverly. Patrick Beverly walked by. They embraced real quick. Did the one-arm hug where you slap each other on the back and then Patrick Beverly walked right. up and did the... I will say, because I enjoy <laughs> laughing at the Lakers, um, there was a joke on NBA Twitter about how they're treating Patrick Beverly's coming like some Hall of Famers joining the team. They had like the solo press conference and everybody, oh, welcome Pat Bev. And I mean, that's kind of what the offseason's been. He's their crowning, he's their crowning achievement. I know I asked you this last week when I'm asking again. Is his personality what they need? I think or, so. Or is, or is he a diminishing returns guy? No, like if you include personality in that, like he's not going to give up on defense. Right. I think that totally helps out what they kind of need. He's his, I will say this, because I'm always just like with Draymond Green, to a lesser extent though, with Patrick Beverly. His personality gives you every bit of the spectrum. There are super high highs with Pat Bev defensively when he's in that zone where he's, you know, stealing balls and knocking them out of bounds and being annoying Pat Bev, Patrick Beverly. Then there's also the downside where he's getting into foul trouble and, you know, getting blown by because he's getting too aggressive and whatnot. There's there's little things like that that work. But, I mean, ultimately, I think he's, he's a very good he's – a, he's a positive for them. Stick your hand in there, Dave. I want to get excited, but I feel like I'm being set up a little bit here. You know, we had Randy Couture on last week, and I threw the Jake Paul Anderson Silva proposed fight his way, and he had a decent breakdown, and a decent breakdown, you know, giving a little bit of credit to Jake Paul, but also pointing out that Jake Paul has beaten guys who really were not stand-up fighters. Mm. All right. So he's fighting Anderson Silva, who's 47 years old. He's not traditionally a boxer. He's been okay boxing. You know, he beat Chavez Jr., who's just kind of lazy and blubbery a lot of times. But he beat him by volume. To me, even at 47, this should be a walkover. But, and by the way, it's on October 29th in Phoenix. A walkover for Silva? Yes. And that he should win easily? I think he should be able to school him even at 47, but then my worry always in these fights is, and Anderson Silva made a good amount of money with the USC, so he's not, he doesn't have quite the same story as like Ben Askren, who didn't try at all, right. or Woodley, who I think tried, is just limited. But for those guys, that was one of the biggest paydays they ever had. And that's my worry. I'm not saying the fix has been in in the past. But certainly in Askren's case, it was a lackluster effort. He didn't come in in shape. Am I being set up here and then Silva's just going in for a payday and just, hey, let's make him look good, but don't touch him too much. We we need the Jake Paul machine to keep running. I don't know if it's perp- like I don't know if it's planning to lose necessarily, or if it's just, hey, this guy is giving you and other fighters out of their prime opportunities to make some of the biggest paydays they have. Don't get super ready for the fight. I mean, this is absurd when you think about it. Jake Paul is probably a little better than we initially gave him credit for. Yes. Right? I don't think he can be a professional boxer and fight guys in his weight class in their prime. Mm -hmm. I think he would get crushed. Anderson Silva's best days were probably nine years ago, but he was one of the most dangerous strikers. He wasn't a wrestler. And, yeah, you're taking away his kicks. I was going to say, I mean, he takes away a pretty but, good well, weapon. Well, but watch. I mean, you're right. The threat of the kick led to a lot of knockouts, but he literally could stand there with MMA guys mm-hmm. and break their face just throwing punches. 
He was the most feared striker in MMA. He's not going to win this? You mentioned the biggest thing, though. That's the biggest deal. When you're in a cage with Anderson Silva, you got to make sure one of those long limbs doesn't come flying up and kick you right in the jaw. Now, if it's just stand-up and you don't have to worry about that in any way whatsoever, he does become diminished to a certain extent, already diminished physically because he's a little bit well, past Screw you with your fight breakdown. What are you doing more of this stuff on VEASAN? That actually sounded pretty good. I, I like I like lots of I know, sports. I know safe. you do. You actually, yeah. <laughs> You're just a basketball guy. <laughs> hey, reminder tonight, Aces coming up at 7 o'clock, pregame shortly before that. We've got an Aces viewing party because we're taking on Seattle here in game four, chance to close out the series. The viewing party is at Parkway Tavern, which has been the home of our viewing parties all year. This one is in Henderson. Great location right there by Lucille's. Damon is going to be there from Raider Nation Radio 920. So cheap beers, cheap eats, uh, free Miller Lite draft if you're wearing – get one draft. If you're wearing Aces gear, and Damon's going to be there, start of the game. So get out there. It's always fun. Rock is crowd. I'll say that. Rock is crowd. Follows the Aces. Parkway Tavern in the district. Stick your hand in there, Dave. I think I made a terrible bet with Willie, but I just like making bets with Willie because every once in a while I can sucker him. Uh, we have been debating. He loves Kenny Pickett. Mm. I think the Steelers in practice saw what they needed to see, and Pickett ain't ready. But that also means I have confidence that Trubisky and the Steelers are going to get off to a good start. So Willie said by game seven, Pickett would be starting. I accepted that bet. So, so I'm also I'm also rolling in Trubisky injury risk that could completely screw me over. So you're pro Trubisky. I'm pro Trubisky, and I think he starts most of the year. And that good. Tomlin will not succumb to stupid pressure about the rookie. You know, get the rookie in there. I think you got a good number. You think like seven? You yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'm double check this really quick. I just don't really believe in. I'm I'm with you. I think you brought up the most important point. I can totally see Tomlin being like, guys, stop. We're not doing well, this. What exactly happened yesterday with the depth chart? Oh, yeah. I didn't see Where that. it was Trubisky one, Mason Rudolph two, Pickett three, which, by the way, makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. Although keeping three quarterbacks is kind of ridiculous. But I can see them having more confidence in Mason Rudolph starting in a pinch over Pickett. And here's the thing that works in your favor as well, I believe. Steelers' bye week is week nine. If you want to get a kid ready for a home game, especially on the other end of a bye week, it'd be against New Orleans. That would be the more beneficial time, I think, to pull the trigger on a switch if that's the case. There's a lot of people listening right now who are like, seriously, Cofield? Mitch Trubisky. Bears? Mitch Trubisky. Bears. Oh, he wasn't good. Turnover-worthy, like, turnover-worthy play rate was out of this world. Less than seven yards per attempt. Like, it was really bad. I also think he had horrific coaching and horrific game planning mm-hmm. in Chicago. He could be better. And these guys know what they're doing. And, you know, there are a lot of people who raved about the work that Trubisky did last year. By the way, nice nice place to learn with Buffalo. Good offensive coaches. I mean, here's the other thing. If you look at the numbers, his last few seasons, Chicago, very comparable to who? Ben Roethlisberger's last year with Pittsburgh. So it's, I mean, it was bad, but at the same time, they were fighting for a playoff spot and Tomlin was fine with it. He'll be fine. You'll get it.
I believe you. I make you the small favor. Tomorrow, we're live at the uh, Battleborn Broadcast Center, Battleborn Injury Lawyers, and then following the show tomorrow, the Marcus Arroyo radio show. But Aces basketball is on the way right here on ESPN Las Vegas. Ari, John, thank you. Have a good night, everybody.